Well, good morning. Welcome to River Oaks. Thank you all for being here today. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. What a beautiful introductory uh, video. Thank you for that, Micah. Beautiful shots of the North Carolina woods and mountains at this time of year. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, after the message today. So I want to mention a couple of things to you uh, before the message. One is that we have coming up on Sunday evening, November the 19th, our annual Thanksgiving prayer and praise service. We enjoy this uh, especially because our friends from Restoration Community Church, which is our daughter church, our church plant on the south side of Winston, North Davidson County area, uh, will be joining us that evening. Uh, an hour of worship and praise and celebration of the Lord's Supper. That is also the time we will dedicate the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes in prayer. And by the way, that ministry is underway now. You can pick up a shoebox today. We'll collect them here. We'll be a regional collection here with boxes coming in from all over the place. And for those of you who'd like to add one of the, the dolls to your box, they're available, made by uh, folks in our church Free in the coffee bar today. You can pick one of those up if you'd like and add that to your shoebox. Before we get into the message, one other thing I'd like to briefly mention is our vision frame. If you've been here for a while, you know that our vision frame is a way we express who we are as a church. Our vision 2025 is a document you can read on our website. It's about a page long, and it paints a picture of who we believe the church would like us to be, what we think the Lord would like our church to look like in the year 2025. As you look at the values on the left side of the frame, you'll see that one of those is mission-minded. And one of the marks at the top is missional living. I'm going to read just a, a brief paragraph out of the Vision 2025 that you'll see on the, the screen next that speaks to our missional living desire by the year 2025. While 80% of River Oaks members serve locally in some way, dozens of others have been called to missions overseas. Now again, this is a vision. This is something we believe the Lord has called us to, and I have to say, we're a long way from that 80% figure. That's something we're going to have to work on quite a bit in the next two years. 80% of us serving beyond the walls of the church to help reach the needy, the lost. Um, secondly, many college students and young adults reflect upon a call to pastoral or missions ministry they receive while students at River Oaks. We're seeing this happen now uh, increasingly, I think. And then finally, spiritual formation at River Oaks is overflowing with generosity that enables the church to give over $500,000 annually to global and national missions, local ministries, and church planting. When we started our church almost 25 years ago, in January of 1999, as a symbolic gesture, we wrote our first check to an international missions opportunity. It was a way of making a statement that we recognize that as we grow as a church, we exist to serve others, to reach others, particularly those who have not been reached with the gospel. And so we've been able to increase our missions giving not only as an amount, but as a percentage of our budget over the years. And I'm happy to tell you that it appears we will have reached this particular goal um, in this very year. 
well in advance of 2025. Thanks to your generosity. Yes, you can applaud and give all praise and glory to the Lord and much gratitude to you for your giving. As I think about the world, I think about what's happening in so many different countries of the world, not only Ukraine and in the Middle East, but uh, in Guatemala and Haiti. With that in mind, I'd like to ask that you join me as we pray once again before we begin the message today. Father, how we thank you that we're able to worship you freely here uh, and peaceably. And Lord, we think of those in our world who are suffering terribly. Lord, I pray for your people in Haiti, and I pray you would strengthen the church in Haiti and enable order to come to that country. I pray the same for Guatemala, Lord, where our missionaries Paul and Elizabeth Branch are leading a great seminary, that you would protect that seminary, that you would bless their work, that you would let it prosper. Father, of course, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the protection of of innocent people and children throughout the Middle East as such conflict has been unfolding. And we pray for an end to war in Ukraine. Lord, you rule over this earth. All authority is given to you, Lord Jesus. And help us to take advantage of the opportunities you've given us to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Speak to us now as we open your word, Lord. And we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. We're studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And today we're coming to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a lengthy chapter of 40 verses. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul covers a number of different issues. If there's one underlying theme to the chapter, one big idea to the chapter, I think it would be this. Be faithful to God where he's called you. Be faithful to God in the situation or station in life to which he has called you. But in leading up to this central idea, the Apostle Paul addresses a number of issues, really important issues, for the uh, Christians at, at Corinth, and I'd like to look at some of those today. The Corinthians had apparently written the Apostle Paul with questions, and in part, 1 Corinthians, the entire book, is his response to questions they had asked and also his uh, efforts to address issues that he knew had arisen in the church. And so, Chapter 7 begins with these words, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they had obviously written the Apostle Paul with some questions. We see later in the letter he writes again, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Now concerning these issues, he's addressing issues and then he'll get to the central idea of being faithful where God has called you. Now, before we get to the central idea, I want to touch on some of these issues he's addressing because they're extremely important. I don't want to just skip over them uh, in this lengthy chapter. The first issue he seems to address is this. Paul affirmed the rightness of a sexual relationship between a man and a woman who are married. Now, you may say, why in the world would he need to address that? Isn't that somewhat obvious I mean, isn't that obvious from the beginning of, of creation? I mean, that this is appropriate for a married 
couple. But keep in mind, the Apostle Paul is responding to their questions. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 immediately follows chapter 6, in which he addressed the issue of sexual immorality. In chapter 6 and verse 18, he'd said, flee sexual immorality. And it would seem that some in Corinth reacted so strongly and legalistically to the immorality of their city that they went to the opposite extreme and said, well, sex is disallowed altogether. But Paul writes, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. Let's pause there and keep that, that slide before us. And let me just say, in making this point, Paul says some things that are, that are critically important, but it's easy to let them go unnoticed. So I want to point them out. First of all, in saying each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, I think Paul here is forbidding polygamy. Now, polygamy was practiced a lot in ancient times. It's practiced in a lot of places in the world today. But note that Paul is focusing on one man, one woman, each man his own wife, each woman her own husband. And then he says something that would have been incredibly radical in his culture, in his day, in his time. Because in Paul's time, men ruled especially in the, the physical relationship that he's addressing here. But he writes, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have her authority over her own body, but the husband does. And notice these words, the husband does not have, a, not have authority over his own wife, uh, body, but the wife does. In his culture, that would have been absolutely radical. And I stress that because a lot of people consider Paul uh, a patriarchal despiser of women. He was not. He's pointing to equality between husband and wife and mutuality. Notice what he writes next. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. If you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, you'll find the additional words and fasting. Fasting and prayer, prayer and fasting. What is his point? The point is simply this. It's good for all people, whether single or married, to have times when you forego some pleasures for a time to focus on prayer. If you're a married couple here today, I think it's worth, worth asking yourselves, do we ever have times when we focus on prayer? Maybe a, a five or ten minute today, uh, ten minutes a day time when we just pray together. As married couples, are you taking time to pray together? And then he concludes with these words, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here he makes another good point. The tempter uses sexual temptation, even for married couples to lead people towards sin. Be aware of that. Don't be ignorant of Satan. So, Paul's 
First point, the rightness of the physical relationship between a uh, married man and woman. Secondly, Paul notes that the grace to remain single is a gift from God. Now, it may have sounded like he said in his verses just prior to this, everybody should get married, but he's not saying that at all. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. Jesus was single. He never married. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, Paul is writing the Corinthians, we'll read later, in a time which he considered a time of distress. May have been persecution against the Christians, uh, we don't know for sure. But Paul is calling them to faithfulness in the, the situation, the status in life in which they found themselves. Note what he says, though, about singleness. He says it's a gift from God. He uses the Greek word charisma. This beautiful word uh, is, it refers to an endowment of God's grace, a gift given from the Holy Spirit to enable us not only to walk more closely with God ourselves, but to serve others. When Paul will write later about the charismata, the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he'll say that these charisms are to be used for building others up. Those of you who are single, have you ever thought of your singleness as a gift from God? A special enabling from God to walk closely with Him, to focus on Him? Have you ever thought of it as a is an opportunity to serve others more fully. When I reflect on my own years of spiritual growth, I have to say that I do believe my years when I was single in my 20s, before my wife and I married when I was 28, that those single years were probably the most rapid years of spiritual growth in my life because of the ability to focus so entirely upon the Lord. Grace to remain single, Paul indicates, is a gift from God. Another point he makes related to this topic as he continues right through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that Christians should not have sex outside of marriage. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, Paul affirms it's good to be single. But if there's not grace for singleness, it's fine to marry. But notice we, what he does not say. He does not say if they cannot exercise self-control, go ahead and live together. Go ahead and indulge yourself. He doesn't give that option, does he? He says marry. In our culture today, the majority of couples live together before they are married. But Paul here is saying, Sex is for the bonds of a covenant of marriage between husband and wife, between man and woman. He continues in verses 10 and 11 and makes the point that those who are married should not divorce. Remember the big idea of this chapter. In light of the present distress, Paul is saying if you're a Christian, you don't have to change your vocation, you don't have to 
to uh, leave your spouse if your spouse is not a believer. Be faithful to God in the situation in life in which you are called. Those who are married should not divorce. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. I don't know exactly why he stressed this here. Perhaps there were some that would have uh, preferred to, to leave their marriage rather than work on a difficult situation, but Paul is calling believers here to reconciliation. He continues, a believer married to an unbeliever should not divorce the unbeliever. It seems that some were asking, okay, I've, I've become a Christian now. Do I need to, to leave my spouse who's not a believer? To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Again, he's saying be faithful in the calling in which you're called. If you became a believer while you're married to your spouse who's not a believer, don't divorce your spouse. Don't leave your spouse. Assuming your spouse consents to live with you. And then he makes a point that I think is one of the more challenging things to understand in the chapter. The believer has a sanctifying influence upon an unbelieving spouse and upon their children. He continues in stressing now why a believer shouldn't leave an unbeliever in, in a marital relationship when he writes these words. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What does that mean? Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this raises a question, doesn't it? What does it mean to say that they are, are holy? I'll say this right off the bat. It does not mean that they are automatically saved. And I think that becomes clear as we continue to read. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And notice what he writes on the next slide. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what does it mean to say your unbelieving uh, spouse is considered holy being married to you? If there's one believer, your children are considered holy. Does it mean that they have been automatically saved? No. These words make it clear. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? What does it mean then? I think it means that a believer in a marriage, in a household, has a sanctifying effect upon the home. By sanctifying, I mean this. God's presence is there because of the believer. A Christian example is there. A witness is there because of the believer. Prayer is there because of the believer. The Holy Spirit is there because of the believer. God's word is there because of the believer. God's presence in a believer 
is greater than any evil within an unbeliever in as much as light is greater than darkness. It's a sanctifying influence. It's a work of God in the home, setting these apart for the Spirit of God to do a work in them. And what Paul is saying is that you shouldn't drive away your unbelieving spouse because your influence is needed in that spouse's life. So he covers a lot of ground in this chapter. But now I'd like to focus on what I think is the, the primary underlying theme of chapter 7 at large. And that has to do with being faithful in the calling, the, the, the station or place in life to which God has called us as believers. And now, if you're falling on the back of your bulletin, we're just now getting to that part. Number one, as Christians, we should remain in the callings God has assigned to us. And Paul says this throughout the chapter, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. In verse 20, he goes on to write, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. In verse 24, he writes, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. It seems like the Corinthians may have been asking, all right, now that I'm a Christian, do I need to leave my unbelieving spouse? Do I need to leave my job? Do I need to undergo some practice, Old Testament uh, law practice like circumcision? I'll read verses 20 to 24. You won't see them on the screen, but Paul writes these words. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You don't have to change your, your job just because you become a Christian. You don't have to leave an unbelieving spouse just because you become a Christian. You don't have to get circumcised just because you become a Christian. Remain where you are. But remember that you have been changed. You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross for you. You've been purchased by God. You're His now. Glorify God where you are. This means that your, quote, secular job, meaning you don't work for a church or a missions organization, your secular job working for a large corporation or a hospital or a law firm or an engineering, engineering firm, your secular job is not unspiritual. Because you have God's presence, His truth, His gospel there, just like a believer brings a sanctifying influence into a marriage or a home, you can bring a sanctifying influence into your workplace. Have you ever thought about that? You ever wondered why you work where you do? You may feel like it's a terribly difficult environment at times. I haven't always been a pastor, by the way. When I first got out of college, I was a sales rep. 
And I can remember sales meetings and working with groups of salespeople uh, as, a, as a young Christian, uh, not really liking a lot of the stuff I had to listen to and being around a lot of stuff that people did. And, you know, there may be lack of integrity. There may be language that dishonors the Lord. But it was a great opportunity to share the gospel, to pray for the people I worked with, to, to witness to people. I don't get to witness to people anymore at work here at the church because they're all saved. They, all, our, our whole staff, 100%. View your vocation as a calling from God. It doesn't mean you can never change jobs. Paul's just making the point that you don't need to feel you must change jobs just because you've become a Christian. You bring a sanctifying influence there. As Christians, we should remain in the callings to which God has assigned us. Secondly, whether single or married, we should be living in light of eternity. Paul goes on to write in the latter verses of this chapter these words. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. You know, we can imagine if we lived in a place like uh, Ukraine, things might change. You had a wedding planned, you might be putting it off. Things could be different. The present distress, we're not told what that was in Paul's time, but it may well have been persecution against Christians. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And notice these words now. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul is saying, limit your worldly troubles so you can focus on God because the present form of this world is passing away. What Paul is calling us to here is an urgency in seeking first the kingdom of God that we might live with an eternal perspective. He's saying the most important thing is not your marital status or your vocation. The most important thing is your devotion to God's kingdom over devotion to this world that is passing away. Whether single or married, we should live in light of eternity. And then finally, we should be as free as possible from earthly anxieties in order to focus more fully on the Lord. He continues toward the end of this lengthy chapter. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Here again, he goes to the benefits of being single. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. 
not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, Paul focuses on the benefits of singleness here because the goal in his words is undivided devotion to the Lord. I had the opportunity this week to talk with a a friend who is single, um, has lived, never been married, uh, late 50s, and uh, strong believer, very strong, somebody who's walked the Lord I I admire. And I asked him, I said, um, what have you found are the benefits of being single as a Christian? And he said this, more capacity to focus on God more capacity to focus on God. Um, He said, being content as a single starts with having a good foundation of knowing God. And he said, when you don't have someone else around to talk to all the time, you can have a lot of very long conversations with the Lord. By the way, I should say, uh, this Christian friend has recently been engaged, and I said, how, how did you decide after these years of singleness to get married? And, and he gave what I thought was tremendous advice for any single who's contemplating marriage. I said, how, how did you know it was, it was right to take this step? He said, her happiness was more important to me than my happiness. Now, if you're single and thinking about marriage, I would think about things that way. Not just about your own fulfillment, your own uh, satisfaction or happiness, but that other person's fulfillment, happiness, becomes more important to you than your own. I can remember as a young man in my 20s, wondering, reading passages like this and wondering whether it, it really was better just not to get married because of what Paul said and And it seemed appropriate to pray a prayer that I would recommend to you if you're single, and that is this, Lord, um, only let me get married if the two of us together can serve you more effectively than the two of us apart. Paul is calling us to deeper devotion to the Lord. And so I'd like to draw to a close with two questions by way of personal application. Number one, Am I seeking to glorify God in the vocation or the situation in life in which he's placed me? Or am I spending a whole lot of time looking to get out of my situation or vocation in order to be happy? Am I seeking to glorify God where I am right here, right now? This job, this house, this place. Am I saying, God, I want to glorify you, give you the greatest glory I can right now? Secondly, what steps can I take to limit earthly anxieties and increase my devotion to the Lord? What, if anything, is keeping me from full devotion to the Lord? When I talk about full devotion to the Lord, I'm not encouraging you to go out and, and, and try to make something happen by the power of your own will. It's not about trying harder, sacrificing more, working to clean up your life. No. 
It's about understanding and embracing more deeply what Jesus has done for you. What it really meant for the Son of God to leave his glory in heaven, to come to this earth, to give his life as a sacrifice, to shed his sinless blood on the cross, to bear the judgment for our sins himself because he chose you and calls you to himself. That is the impetus for deeper devotion to the Lord, knowing that. <clears throat> the more deeply we understand what Jesus has done for us, the deeper will be our devotion to him. And we celebrate that today by celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And maybe it's today, I hope for many of you it will be a day to renew your devotion to the Lord. And if you'd like to participate with us in the Lord's Supper, uh, and you did not get one of these packaged cups on the way in, if you'll just raise your hand where you are, our ushers will bring one around to you. And I see a number in the back here and over here as well. Let me first read Paul's words of instruction about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Jesus is calling us to continue to practice what he did with his own disciples before going to the cross. Proclaiming his death, making a visible proclamation by partaking of the, the bread, the little wafer, and the juice that points to his blood that was shed for us on the cross. But Paul gives a warning not to do this unworthily. The way I understand Paul's warning, I think he's saying that you really need to be a believer if you're going to partake of communion, that you have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, and if you're not sure you've done that, this would be a wonderful time to do that, to become sure about that. It's also a time to search our hearts and to renew our own uh, devotion to the Lord, asking for his spirit to call us out of complacency and deeper devotion to himself. So before we partake, I'd like to take a moment to pray and have a, a moment of silence so we can take it uh, with the right mind and understanding. Father, we pray that your spirit would prepare us to take communion in the way we should take it and to receive all the benefits that you intend and by no means to take it wrongly. For anyone here who's not certain whether you have truly placed your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, this would be a good time to recognize that he died to pay for your sins. He purchased your salvation. He did what you could not do for yourself, and he calls you to turn from sin and self-rule to his saving lordship. 